If you turn with me to Scripture, Matthew chapter 27, or, pa- or turn to page 6 in our bulletins. As we begin our Lenten series, Matthew wants to show you that Jesus is the eternal king and the savior of the world. And he does this by pointing to all sorts of places in the Old Testament to prove to us that Christ indeed is the Messiah sent from God to save his people, and so, or to save God's people. And we're now nearing the end of Jesus' life and ministry. And as we go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 10, let me read. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And this is God's word. You've just heard uh, Donnie read the passage that we're uh, going to look at today. It's interesting that he called you guys uh, the Temple University group children, uh, because I think I'm easily the oldest person in the room. If uh, God allows, I'm going to reach the biblical number of 40 in June, and it's the same day as our 11th anniversary. By God's grace, we hope to reach both of those marks. Um, And in preparing for this and realizing, you know what, I I am literally the oldest guy in this room, and I am probably old enough that I could call you guys children, Uh, just from an age standpoint. um, I thought, you know, Lord, I've been alive long enough um, that I've made um, a whole lot of mistakes. There's been plenty of time to make a lot of mistakes. And sometimes when you look at people, um, you can learn a lot by what they do right, but you can also learn a lot by what they've done wrong. My sister is five years younger than me, and uh, she's been largely successful in life because being five years younger than me, she was able to look ahead and say, okay, somebody made a right turn over there. That means I need to make a hard left. <laughs> and uh, so I, I intend to share with you uh, some of those things, especially as we're talking about the season of Lent. And here we are at Metro, and we're joining the worldwide body of Christ. So s- seats filled or not, um, while we were sleeping somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, in New Zealand and Australia, the people of God started their worship. So we're only joining something that's been going on probably 24 hours. And the worldwide body of Christ is marching towards the most import- towards remembering the most important week in the history of the world. In church circles, uh, that week is sometimes called Holy Week to give the sense of it's set apart from all the other 52 weeks, Holy Week. My particular experience of church life, we called it Passion Week. Now, in Latin, the word passion means to suffer. 
So Passion Week then is the, is the week where Christians all around the world, including Metro in its one month anniversary basically, we intentionally remember the final week of Jesus' life as the culmination of God's sovereign plan from eternity past. Last week, Reverend Delog preached out of John 3.16, and he preached that God so loved the broken and battered world that he sent his only son, why? To heal and restore those who were sick and dying. Then Passion Week is the week in which Jesus walks inexorably to the city of Jerusalem, and he hands himself over to the very ones he came to seek and save and heal. And what happens? He's not only rejected by those he came to seek and save, the lost, the least, the last, he's murdered. The series is meant for us as a community not just to remember and think about the people that surrounded Jesus during that week, but throughout the season, here's what we're encouraging you to do. Even as you go through spring break, and, and I am so blessed that on your spring break, uh, you'd be so committed to the values and missions that the Lord has given this church that you'd come. Throughout this Lenten season, we're trying to encourage one another to come to grips with this that even today, our faces, every single one of us, can be found among the crowd that surrounded Jesus during that final week, the Passion Week. And because our story, our story, is grafted into the story, the events of Passion Week actually make all the difference for us living right here and right now. And so my assignment is to look at Judas Iscariot, son of Simon of Cariot. Now, I give you his full identification, Judas Iscariot, son of Simon of Cariot, because Brother Judas needs some love. He just needs some love, and, and in that culture, and even in the Indian culture, your name is incredibly valuable. In fact, when, when I go to India, People don't really want to know what I've done, what I've accomplished, this and that. They want to know my name, where I lived, my father's name. It tells them everything about them. What's in the name of Judas? Well, I don't have to tell you he's Judas Iscariot, son of Simon of Cariot, because we all know that pretty much anyone in the world, when you hear the name Judas, you know who he is, even if you've never stepped inside of church. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you and I know that for a new parent to look at their child and decide to name him Judas, okay? Even though the name Judas, I don't know if you knew this, I only found that out preparing this, the name Judas means praise of God. Do you think there's a single person who decides to name their child Judas that thinks it means praise of God? Absolutely not. There's only one path you can go through and you must go through if you want to name your child Judas. And that is the path of the story of Judas. And Judas' name, even though it means praise of God, is forever associated with the word traitor. Betrayer. Judas is forever associated with 30 pieces of silver, which as Donnie read, was the payoff he received for his treachery for his betrayal of Jesus. So 
you have to, you have to really intentionally as a parent think through that. And you have to come to grips with the fact that no matter how much you try to explain, but it means praise of God, everyone's going to go, you named your kid Judas? There's, a res- there's many respected pastors and teachers. One of them, John Piper, someone who I respect a lot, he was once asked this question. Listen to this. What was the most spectacular sin ever committed? Someone like me, I'm sitting there going, oh, tell me, John, what was the most spectacular sin ever committed? Listen to what he says. I think the most spectacular sin ever committed was the murder of the Son of God, Jesus. But that begs the question, which sin in the murder was the most spectacular? Piper goes on to say, if you forced me to choose one, one of those, it would be Judas because of the combination of evils in the heart of Judas. You measure the greatness of a sin. Listen to this. You measure the greatness of a sin and the spectacular dimension of a sin by several things. One is the one sinned against and the other is the good that was done to you in spite of which you hurt the other person. And so, Piper says, in view of all those, it just seems to me that Judas had the greatest advantage and Judas participated in the destruction of the Son of God to the fullest extent. That is sobering for me to think about. For number one, I'm so glad that I'm not the answer to the question, what is the most spectacular sin ever committed? Number one. But number two, I'm glad it's someone else and someone I know. Why? Because I like to distance myself from Judas. In fact, I gotta confess here, I need Judas's treachery to help me. I need the answer to the question, what is the most spectacular sin in the history of man? I need it to be someone other than me. Why? Because there's something true of me that's true of all of us, that's true of everyone that surrounded Jesus, especially during the Passion Week. They, and as part of this series, Metro is saying, we, we all need atonement. We need things, things that we have done or things that have been done to us. We need those things to be made right. We want to be in the clear. We don't want to owe anyone, and we don't want people to owe us. We want broken things fixed. And in the deepest part of ourselves, we feel those parts where we can, which we can tell no one about except God. In the deepest part of ourselves, we feel unclean. And we desperately want to be clean. We're looking for atonement, and we do whatever it takes to have it. It was true of Judas, it's true of me, and it's true of us. But here's the problem. My path of atonement is this. I'm constantly looking for and trying to find people who are worse than myself. 
so I can feel better about myself. That's how I medicate myself. It's what I instinctively put my hope in, that somewhere, someone out there in the world is a bigger jerk than even me. I call it the Jonah effect. God, I need your forgiveness. In fact, I need it right away. But Eagles fans? No, 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 Lord. They should never have the privilege to experience a Super Bowl win ever in their life. They're such jerks. It's the Jonah effect. I need it, but, but he, but she, that's a different story. It's sort of like looking at the fantasy football of life and saying, God, it was a smart move for you to choose me, even if I'm just going to warm the bench my whole career. But there are some dudes like, Judas? Really, God? What were you smoking, Lord? And I can bring it down even to a practical thing. You know what? When, when my wife and I have conflicts, and we do, and that's why I say, by the grace of God, we're going to reach 11 years in June, we have moments of what I call intense fellowship. And when I wrong her, I got to tell you, I love it when my wife forgives me, and especially when she does it quickly. When, just before we were engaged, I had to come clean to Shiny about some of my past, which is not very pleasant. I prayed a lot before that confession, because I thought for sure when she hears me unroll it, she's going to run away screaming, and I will lose her. But I prayed, and then I went for it. Told her on the phone, she was quiet. I gave her about four seconds to be quiet, and then I got nervous. And I said, I'm starting to hear crickets. I don't know if she hung up. Is this over or what? My wife said to me, I forgive you. With tears in her voice, I forgive you. If Christ has forgiven me of my sins, how could I hold it against you? And it has been a wonderful journey of 11 years of asking my wife, forgive me, and mostly getting it quickly. When she asks for my forgiveness, I hesitate. Why? You see, because teaching her a lesson about the heinousness of the sin she has committed against me before I declare absolution of all of her faults, that's the way to atone for the injury I have felt at her hands. You see, I have been hurt by her. There is, as Donnie said, a debt of pain that needs to get paid down. And how do I do it? By making sure that she feels pain. Will you forgive me? Well, well, we have to really rethink about what you've done here, Sean, and walk her through it and, and wait for that moment when she's just about to plummet to the depths of hell and guilt and then snatch her up, but I forgive you. <laughs> My debt of pain is getting paid down. I'm feeling good because she feels the pain of the treachery against me. It's the Jonah effect. I need it quick, but you, that's a different story. The way to atone for the injuries you have put on me is for you and for me to make you feel the pain. And it's an endless circle of insanity. I know I'm wrong, I have severe limitations, and I deal with failures, and I'm haunted by guilt for 40 years. I've wanted to stop the pain. I want to move out of my paralysis. I need help. I want to be clean. I need my sins to be atoned for. The question is, how? 
How? And so we come to the text. Now in verses 1 and 2 of this evening's text, we read that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they came to a conclusion. And it was this. Jesus the Nazarene, son of Joseph and Mary, had committed blasphemy. He preached that he was the promised Messiah. He was the one sent from God to rescue the cap- to rescue Israel and to set the captives free. And these leaders decided that he was so guilty that he was deserving of death, but not just any death. What they could have done is said, he's guilty, he's deserving of death, let's do the public stoning thing. In the Gospels we read about a woman committing, caught in the act of committing adultery, brought out to the center of the square, the chief priest, the religious folks with stones surrounding her, ready to kill her in public. Jesus is there and comes to her defense. Later on, we'll read in Acts, an evangelist named Stephen, talking about the Son of God, preaching the gospel. He is stoned publicly. They could have done the same. He's guilty. He deserves death. Let's stone the heck out of him. But they don't. What do they do? It says they hand him over to Pilate, the governor. They hand him over to the Romans. Why? Two reasons. You see, when you're religious, just religious, you know the Bible real well, and you know how to use it like a bat. You don't use it as something that has wonderful words of life to heal, restore, forgive, change. You use it like a bat to beat people down with to atone for yourself. And these religious people knew their Bible. That Deuteronomy 21, which is quoted in the Galatians passage which Donnie read as our word of encouragement, it says, cursed, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Anyone is cursed. And so the religious leaders thought two things. One, we got to throw them up there. We got to throw them up on a tree. That way, not just the people who see it, but even his followers will feel that he's been discredited. Because the Messiah, the Messiah would not be cursed of God hanging on a tree. Part one. Part two of this brilliant plan was, let's make the Romans do it. Why? Because let's say things don't go so well. Let's say this large growing group of Jesus followers get really upset. They start a documentary, put it on YouTube. They get lots of views. They create a Facebook group. It's growing huge. It's getting out of They can always say, we, we wanted to stone him. They threw him up on the cross. It's another way of atoning. It's another way of saying we had the right intentions. It's blame shifting. And it's been in place since Genesis. Adam said to God, it was the woman you gave me. And it's been blame shifting ever since. It's atonement of the worst kind. It's your fault, not mine. The Romans are creeps, not us. And so it goes. But now we come to some of the most painful verses in all of the scripture to me. And I got to tell you something. It really kills me. Let's read it together one more time. It's in your bulletin. Matthew 27, 3 to 5. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said. 
for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. Judas is now filled with remorse because he realizes what his actions led to. Now, the question I asked when I read this through tears coming down my face was not how could he do it? How could he do that? It's not hard for me to imagine how he could do that. Every time I have a colleague at work, a good friend who is a non-believer, who thinks church is whack, who finds Christianity corny, goes through a very immensely difficult time, and I know in my heart he knows we're friends. I should feel safe. And I know I should say, brother, dude, let me pray for you. And I hesitate. And I don't. I know how Judas could have done what he did. Every single time I find it easier to throw up a status on Facebook that indicates I'm a Christian, that indicates that I'm right there with anything Tim Keller says. Moments after he says it, I throw it up on Facebook. Let the world know I'm a Keller Christian. But in person, before non-Christians, the lump in my throat, the pounding in my heart is real. And I hesitate. And very often, I just pretend like I didn't see the opportunity. I didn't hear it, Lord. Sorry. I can understand how, but the question I asked is not how, why. Why did Judas do it? And the reality is, you cannot see what happened to Judas without recognizing that the financial factor goes deep into what's happening in his soul. In the preceding chapter, Matthew 26, we're not going to go there, but just know this. When he goes to the chief priest, when he goes to the Sanhedrin and he says, I can, I can get you Jesus, he follows it up with, how much will you give me? What's it worth to you? And then in John's gospel, John chapter 12, we hear this story of Jesus entering a home, as he always did. He's reclining at the table, and a woman comes in, and she has an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. What does she do? She breaks it, and she pours this very expensive perfume over Jesus. And it says in John's gospel, John chapter 12, it says this, Judas murmured in his heart, and he said, what a waste. That money that could have come, the proceeds that could have come from that perfume could have been used to feed the poor, to take care of the poor. On the surface, yeah, I guess so. Social justice, I'm right there with you. But here's the nugget in scriptures. John 12, 6, it says, Judas said this not because he had a heart for the poor. It says this, it says, but because he was a thief. He held the money bag for the whole outfit. Jesus and the disciples, he was the treasurer. He was the trustee. And it says in John 12, 6, he would dip into the treasury himself for his own needs. He was a thief. 
money was incredibly important to him. Not just money, but it was his love of money that was clearly a factor. But even that's not the complete answer. Because if money was the only thing he cared about, if money is what he lived for, if money was what he worshipped, then he wouldn't settled for 30 pieces of silver. In fact, according to Exodus 21, check this out. I, I, had, you know, I, I had to do a lot of concordance stuff to try and find out things. And, and I never saw this before. I've read through the Bible. I never caught this. You know, sometimes you zip, when you're reading through the Bible, you zip through some parts that are sort of details and you just don't get it. And here's one I found. In Exodus 21, 30 pieces of silver was at that time the value of a slave accidentally gored to death by an ox. It's in the Bible. <laughs> I, was just, I just sat there stunned because this is the implication. Consider this. The Son of Almighty God was so discounted and despised that betraying Him was only worth the same amount one would receive if a bull accidentally pierced a slave to a bloody death. In the Bible, Paul, an older gentleman, advised a young Christian, Timothy, that the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he said to him, and I want to tell you guys who are especially younger than me, from the bottom of my heart, I'm just quoting Paul, but saying I so understand and agree with you, Paul. It says that he told Timothy that some eager for money, some eager for money, not some who have a lot, not some who have a little. It says some eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So a covetous heart, it doesn't just reveal itself in the issues of finance, it reveals itself in all other kinds of ways. Some speculate that perhaps Judas wanted to get this whole Jewish independence thing going. This is what the Messiah was here for. We're supposed to throw over the Romans. We're supposed to have our own state. Let's get it going. Let me give Jesus a boost. Let's jumpstart this thing. And he and most old, good old Hebrews, they expected that to happen, and it wasn't happening. So maybe, as some speculate, Judas was just trying to, let's get this thing going. Let's move. We're doing this three years preaching, healing, this and that. Come on, let's get this going. Let's do this. And maybe... If that's true, he thought he was taking control of the situation and then he sees Jesus condemned and he sees, wow, this has nothing to do with Jewish independence. And the Bible says he's seized with remorse, seized, seized with remorse for betraying someone who was innocent. So now he's desperate. He's looking to shed the overwhelming burden of guilt. He is un clean and he wants to be made clean so where does he go what does he do he returns to the spiritual leaders and he brings with him the 30 pieces of silver they paid for the betrayal and maybe in his spiritual anguish judas was looking for just a little guidance and help can you help a brother out i messed up help me and he's disappointed again. 
Judas's confession is, I sinned, but he spells it out, doesn't he? He says, I didn't just sin generally. I betrayed innocent blood. And it turns out that those who paid the bribe to get Jesus into their hands were the wrong people to bring spiritual comfort to this remorseful sinner. And they disclaim responsibility. They say, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. It's emphatic. They're saying, your conscience problem, Judas, it's on you, man. They were unable to see that Judas was a man in desperate spiritual need. They could not and they would not help him. And verse 5 says, Judas then, seized with remorse, bitterly disappointed, lost, hurls the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, and then he went and committed suicide by hanging. He came to this conclusion, it's up to me to atone for my wrongs. And overwhelmed and unable to live with the disappointment that everything he lived for failed him, he took his life. It literally crushed his soul, and it hurts mine to read this and talk to you about it, because it's not hard for me, Sandash, to imagine making a mistake, a really, really bad mistake, and holding out for some hope that things can be made right, only to find that everywhere I look turns up empty. I want my wrongs to be made right. I'm willing to admit I was wrong. But no one or nothing can or will help. Now, if I'm a good Hindu or even a Buddhist, what do you do? Well, you pretty much wait till you die. You bear the burden of this. You wait till you die. But karma's going to get you when you come around. And your next cycle of reincarnation, you go through life still bearing the consequences of your sin, hopefully doing better so that on the next round you do just a little bit better, but you never shed of that. I'm not a Hindu or a Buddhist declaratively. I don't go to temple, but functionally I can live like that, carrying it, trying to figure out how to make it right. What do you do When you have committed, and I want to ask you to think about this in as personal a way as possible, what do you do when you have committed the most spectacular sin in your life, in your life, and this time there is no way out, no way around? What do you do when you need atonement, but no one, including yourself, can provide salvation, redemption, when you feel so unclean and you want to be clean more than anything, what do you do? And so we come to the end of this passage. Verses 6 through 10. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. 
That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. In their utter insanity, think of this. They took money from the treasury to have a man unjustly arrested and they took him and they falsely condemned him and they had no problem with money being used for that. But when it came back, all of a sudden their consciences kicked in. Oh, no, 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 no. That's blood money. Can't put it back. You just, you just made a withdrawal for the purpose. Now you can't. But that's what happens when you're trying to atone for yourself. You go insane. It's illogical. So what do they do? They take the blood money. They purchase some land called the potter's field. They rename it the field of blood. And from then on, it becomes a cemetery for foreigners, for outsiders, for non-Jews, for people who probably don't worship God, or at least the God of Israel. People who probably worship false gods. So the land was purchased with the money that came from the price paid to have Jesus delivered up to death. It was hurled into the temple by a man who proceeded to go and hang himself. And here's the remarkable thing. Donnie said it. Matthew is saying this was all the sovereign plan of God. All of it. Not one detail did he leave out. God planned from eternity past and executed it in the most important week in the history of the world. So, here we are. March of 2012, Philadelphia, Metro Press. We're looking at Judas. We're watching the people surrounding Jesus. Can we see ourselves? Now, Tim Keller wrote a great book. He's written many great books. And you can get it from Metro called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. Next week, during the full set, it's going to be on sale at a heavily discounted price. I'm begging you, especially you guys in Temple. I know you got lots of textbooks to read. You're trying to even read the Bible on top of that. Now you want me to read another book? I'm telling you, this is worth it. And if you can't purchase it, I've been told by Donnie that the leaders here will make sure you can get your hands on it. I read this, in fact, I I borrowed Angela's uh, book, but it was so good, I'm going to purchase a copy. I promise, Tim. Uh, uh, Tim Keller, that is. Tim Shinto. I urge you (laughs) to consider asking anyone for a copy of this book. I want to tell you that it helped me understand that sometimes even good things in my life, they vault to ultimate things that I want, need, must have, live for, and will do whatever is necessary to have it. And that, my friends, is called worship. Worship is ascribing worth. And there are things in my life, even good things, that I ascribe so much worth to that it vaults to number one on my list. And God, even the gospel, somehow slips and drops to two, three, four. Then I listen to a sermon from Donnie. One. But then a couple of days later, three, four. Listen to Tim lead us in worship. And it goes back up. In a circle of insanity, even good things 
And what is it that sells in the world today? Um, Tim talked about it, uh, prayed about it during worship. Money, sex, power, the very things Tim Keller wrote, wrote about. Just look at what's on the newsstands. Look at what's on the blog feeds. Look at what's being twitted. Look at all of these things. You'll see what generates traffic and interest is issues of money or possessions, issues of power, and issues of passion, sex. And the church is not immune to these dangers. And I would tell you this. You would love the leaders of Metro well if you seriously prayed for the leaders of Metro to resist the temptation to let money, sex, power ever vault to number one. And that when it does, that they will repent quickly and let Christ become God, not a counterfeit. You would be loving this church well if you prayed for your leaders that way. You would also be loving one another well if in your community groups you got there and you started inviting friends in to your life to help you identify counterfeit gods in your life. Because we need each other. Sometimes I need someone to come and look at me and say, hey bro, you were eating that cake, this cream right there, no, right there, there, yeah, right there. Bro, you're smiling, it's great, there's a piece of meat, all right? Over there, it's kind of annoying. Sister, there's a lot of selfishness that's driving your actions right now, even your words. It's selfishness. You're thinking only about yourself, and you don't even know it. You're blind to it. Brother, you're so scared, you're so insecure that you're remaining silent. You're standing still, going nowhere, doing nothing. We need one another to help us see that our desires for power, possessions, and passion, what they're doing is it's contending for supremacy. So our war problem is not horizontal. First and foremost, it's vertical. The things we want are contending for number one with God. We want to be the kings of our own little kingdoms. And in our kingdoms, there can only be one king because anything with two heads is what? It's a monster. And guess what? In my kingdom, there's only going to be one head. It's going to be mine. I must be the king. And in my kingdom, I must have control. So when I have a broken friendship, and I do, or a shattered family, and in some places I do, or an academic or professional career in shambles or unsure, when I have things that I don't want, and when I want things that I can't have, my problem is a spiritual one first. First, I am contending with God for worship. And if I don't see that, and if we don't help one another see that, then the way of Judas Tragic self-atonement through suicide is really the only option for change. It's the only way to make the pain stop. If you and I can't help one another see, it's vertical first, not this way. First this, and then from there, this. If we don't help one another see that, what we're going to do is go through this cycle of insanity. We'll increasingly look for people worse off than us to help medicate us, to help us strengthen the borders of our own little kingdom. 
Our failures will, will be more manageable if I can look at Hijun, not, not this Hijun, from American Idol, and see all of his failures, then I can look at the leaks in the roof of my castle and plug them and say, well, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as Hijun. At least I'm not the answer to the question of what's the most spectacular sin in the world, in the history of men. But it just keeps going on and on. And some of us think that what we want is for, in, in my case, I can be prone to thinking, you know, Shine, I just want you to say it's okay. Get the it's okay stamp and just keep stamping it. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And it goes, and it goes, and it goes on, and on, and on. And that's the definition of insanity. Not linsanity, insanity. Insanity is this. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and you actually expect a different result. That's insane. And we go through those cycles because we're looking in all the wrong places. Tim Keller wrote in that book one of many wonderful things. He says, the counterfeit, it can't just be removed. It has to be replaced. That's beautiful. You can't just remove it and have nothing in first. It's got to be replaced by the real thing. This week, Shiny and I joined millions of people, and we watched um, the Joseph Coney documentary. Is there anyone here who's joined the other millions of people? Raise your hand. just want to see so you know where, where I'm trekking. I watched that Joseph Coney thing. I, I couldn't believe it. The creativity is amazing, and the atrocities are real, and I was beyond angry. Joseph Coney, if you haven't heard, is this Ugandan war criminal who years ago, and it's not clear if he's still doing it, was abducting 30,000-plus children. Children, real children, not Temple University children, okay? Real children from their homes. He would take them into the jungle. He would train the boys to carry machine guns, brainwash them, and even cause them to kill their own parents. He would take the girls and make them sex slaves. And through cycles of Pregnancies, rapes, murders, 30,000 plus children in Uganda, unaccounted for, one man leading the whole charge. I was so angry. And as I watched that, I said, in my heart, I said, Sean, we're going to buy those kits, okay? We're going to buy all those kits, and we're going to put bracelets on our kids, and we're going to let the whole world know that we're going after Joseph Coney. And we're going to get him. I'm going to make it a point that during this presidential election, everywhere I see an Obama poster or a Romney poster or whoever it's going to be, I'm going to throw up a Joseph Coney poster. We're going to make Joseph Coney famous so he's arrested and brought to justice. Yeah, that jerk. And then I read more. and, And here's something I found out about Joseph Coney. He considers himself a Christian. The name of his army is the Lord's, uh, I have it written here and I can't even remember. Oh, where is it? The LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army. And here's the symbol of the Lord's Resistance Army. It's amazing. It's a picture of the Ten Commandments. The Bible, Ten Commandments. The Christian Bible, Ten Commandments. And And he, in an interview, says, I just want the Ugandan government to go back to obeying the Ten Commandments. Is that so wrong? No! That's a pretty good idea. If you're going to have a couple of laws that you want to throw up that a government 
follows? Yeah, the Ten Commandments right out of the Bible. But what happened? What happened? In his desire for power, illogically, he takes the Ten Commandments, he tries to force it on people, and it results in 30,000 plus children being abducted, killed, and turned into murderers. I was livid. And then I met this week with Pastor Angelo Giuliani of Bridge Community Church, and of course, we're talking about our week, and the Coney thing comes up because 50 other million people are talking about it. And we talk about other things, and we go to pray together, and he prays this. He goes, Lord, we pray for Joseph Coney. We pray that he will come to his senses and turn himself in. In my heart, I went, what? No, no. We don't want to forgive Joseph Coney. We want to jack Joseph Coney. But I think because I was preparing for this sermon, the Spirit came quickly. The Spirit came quickly and told me, you know what? I think that's exactly right. Shailin is a uh, Philadelphia hip-hop artist, and he's written a lot of great rap songs. One of my favorites that he's written is a song called Were You There? And in the chorus of the song, he asks a rhetorical question. It's this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Joseph Coney, Judas, and Sandos John were a lot more alike than we are different. We're all contending for supremacy with God. It's just that we do it differently. But the three of us, we want power. We want control. We don't want to feel like we're losing. And it makes us insane. One of my struggles is with money. I don't have a lot. I have always known financial struggles. And... Um, Trusting God as a single-income family, a father, a husband that wants to always provide for my family, um, trusting God uh, is a very difficult thing, especially when a need comes, when someone comes with a need, um, whether it's poor people on the street or not, other needs. It's actually, I'm confessing to you, I'm, I'm I hope this is more repentance than confession, but it's very difficult. And then last week, I heard Reverend D. Logue. say that, from here, testify that when he and his family needed food, and there's never been a day my family has not had food, say that when he needed food, and when he and his family were sitting in the dark because they couldn't afford the electricity, I heard that man, who is now pastoring in the most dangerous city in America, say that two brothers, Johnny and Danny Cho, went to his home with food and money. And I want to tell you, I sat there feeling so proud to say the Cho's are our friends. And I also, in that same moment, felt so unclean. Because I said, God, I want to trust you that way. 
I want to trust you in such a way that when the need comes, because I know he has provided for everything, he has atoned for me, I can in faith give and bless. Were you there? I'm wrapping up here. I'm sorry I've taken so long. I want to read you something that Paul Tripp wrote. I want you to think about this. Paul Tripp wrote this. Sin makes us glory thieves. Sin makes us glory thieves. He writes, there is probably not one day when we do not plot to steal glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord. When we compete with one another for glory, we fail to experience the unity that can only be found when we join together to live for him. Sin has made us glory robbers. And so what happens? We don't suffer well, do we? Because suffering interferes with our glory. We don't find relationships easy, do we? Why? Because others compete with us for glory. And we don't serve well because in our quest for glory, we want to be served. So what do glory thieves do when we come face to face with our crimes? When the fullness of our crimes hits you and I and we know we're glory thieves, what do we do? If you've been coming to Metro even once, you know the answer. We must help one another look to the cross. Where, why? Because that's where we will only ever find true and lasting atonement. The Sanhedrin was right. Jesus was rightly cursed on the cross. He was treated like a thief. And he was crucified between two thieves. Why? So that you and I wouldn't be treated and punished for the glory thieves we are. Now, one thief on Jesus' side spoke and asked for help only to get out of the predicament. He could only see horizontally that he was suffering and he wanted it to stop. He wanted atonement on his terms to save his own quickly crumbling little kingdom. And Judas was a thief like him. He looked to man to help him deal with his guilt, his shame. And that thief and Judas the thief both perished in self-atonement. But listen, it's a marvelous story. It's my story. It's your, it can be your story. There was another thief hanging on the other side of Jesus. And the other thief heard the first thief trying to justify himself. So what does this thief do? He rebukes the other thief. And he admits their sins. He says, we are thieves horizontally. But vertically, we are also glory thieves. So that thief looks to Jesus on the cross. It's recorded in the Bible. It's part of the most important week in the history of the world. And that thief looks to Jesus on the cross. And he says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And here's the good news. And forgive me if I'm a little too loud, but it's so good. I want to shout it from the mountaintop. Jesus says, today you are with me in paradise. How? 
this dude ain't going to Metro Press next week. This dude ain't giving offering. This dude ain't going to community group. He's hanging on a cross. He is a thief. He's guilty. He's dying. But instant forgiveness, instant salvation, instant atonement. How? Why? Don't you want to know on the basis of what? One word. One word. Lord. When this thief said, Lord, he moved from just confessing that he's unclean to admitting that he needs Jesus to be clean. Jesus, who was innocent, was treated and punished as if he were a thief so that people who are thieves, like you and me, can truly be saved and changed as if we were innocent. And in our place, the innocent Son of God was punished for a crime he did not commit so that glory thieves like you and I can enjoy the paradise of being loved by and loving God and others with everything we've got. I was discussing this sermon with Shine and Shine said to me, a thief is just trying to steal what he wants, but God gives us what we need. And on top of that, he gives us everything we need for life and godliness, it says in Peter's epistle. Like Judas, we sell out for what we want. Thieves take, but Jesus paid a price for what he wanted, us. And like that field for foreigners, outsiders, people far from God, people who worship counterfeit gods, his blood covers the field and purchases us, ransoms us, atones for us. And the more Metro, take it from an old head, the more we remind one another of that, the more we celebrate the atonement Christ made in our behalf, my beloved church family, the more we are able to enter a world that is right now outraged at Joseph Coney and others. And we're able to invite those people to recline at the table with Jesus to listen and learn and maybe even receive the atonement they really long for. And maybe they don't even know it. And next week is yet another opportunity for you to say, I'm more like Judas and Joseph Coney than I know. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Michael Card once wrote a song called Why. And in one of the verses, he sings this. I was going to sing it for you, but I'm all snotty right now, so I won't. In one of the verses, he sings, Why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they nail his feet and his hands when his love would have held him there? It was a cross, listen, for on a cross, a thief was supposed to pay. And Jesus had come into the world to steal every heart 